Otherwise, I'll just... Okay, all right. I'll lower my voice just a little. We've got some big stuff coming. I know that Ron has already prayed for the Bible reading and the sermon and all of that. I think it would be helpful if we just pause and I'd like to lead us in prayer again. And as Ron reminded us, um, God's a talking God. He talks to us in words through his, his word, the Bible, and we talk back to him in prayer because God is a talking God. So let's just do that and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, our God, you are the God of grace and holiness. You are father to the fatherless. You are refuge for the lost. Today, as we consider your word, the Bible, we humbly ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand, along with a heart that is like a garden bed, well prepared, dug over, ready to receive the seed of your word, the truth. Please take your truth and plant it deep in our hearts. And we ask this for your glory, for our good, because we need this like we need oxygen. And please do this for the blessing of the Williton community. We humbly ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, you've most likely seen the letterbox flyer and I'd like to say this morning it's a very very big question but it's not like the referendum on the voice oh dear here we go with a referendum it was yes or no and if we were to talk together and I would ask this question how can we trust the bible or if you like do you trust the Bible? Your answer might be yes, like me, or it might be no, like many others, or it might be I don't know. Recently, Rolanda, my wife, and I were chatting with a young lady, 20-something, maybe 30, who came to our church for the first time. She had never been to a church in her life before. And she's not alone. She actually said to us, I needed to hear that message that was spoken today. And she's one of many. We live in a multicultural, multi-faith society. And there is at least one generation, I tend to think two, but at least one, who have never been to church, who have never read a Bible. And the bottom line is, we're living in Williton, in a culture, in a society that's disconnected from the Bible. So this morning, I want to respect that. And I want to go back one step before we come to our question and ask another question. What is the Bible? Well, it's a book. It's a book that's a collection of 66 smaller books that's been written by 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years, with the last one being written toward the 
first century. Now that makes it a pretty old book. So let's have a look at this book. And perhaps I might get our friend at the desk to help me. I'm, this is just not working for me. Next slide. This is an overview of the Bible. I won't go through all the details, but I simply want to make the point that there are two main parts to the Bible. The first is the Old Testament, which is about two-thirds of the Bible, 39 smaller books. And it starts at the beginning, when God made the world, and it follows God's dealing with mankind through one people, the Jews, up until the time just before Christ was born. And then you see that line, and that is the line separating that from the New Testament, which is the remaining 27 books, which deal with the birth of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, and it carries on from there, and its focus is on what God has done not just with the Jews, but with his people, the church, a worldwide people who are gathered in the name of Jesus and meeting just like we are today. But that's not the end of the story. This Jesus who lived and died and rose again and returned to heaven is coming back. And he's coming back to bring in a new world and that world is going to be glorious now, please note two things, not just that the Bible is in two main parts, but that line is also the marking line that split human history into two parts. Everything in our history, whatever you believe, is either BC, before Christ, or AD, after him. And that makes Jesus a very central and important figure. So I'd just like us... To, to note that. Now what's so amazing about this book, these 66 smaller books, is that it's one story. It's the story, and we've sung it, of God and his love for a world that was once perfect, but then was plunged into ruin. And he has worked to save it, and he has done that through his son, Jesus, who's the main character in the story. So please, don't just think of the Bible as a book, which of course it is. It's a love story. It has one author. It has one theme, God and his love for the world. It has one main character, and that is Jesus, the Son of God. So that's an overview. Just to help us get our heads around what we're talking about, Thanks. Next slide, please. But today, the question is, can you trust this book? I say, yes. And I'll tell you why a little later. But there are many others who say, no. As there are others who say, I don't know. And I'd like to focus on the no camp for a little while, just so we're aware, because many of them are just ordinary, everyday Aussies. Many of them are people from other faiths and other beliefs. And many of them are people like Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book, The God Delusion, 
the title says it all. So these people are very smart people, intelligent, they've written books, they have an incredible following, and people hang off the stuff they write. Richard Dawkins, if we come back to his title on that one book, that was a runaway bestseller. I've read that when it came out, it was just walking off the shelves at the airports because it actually connected with people. You see, Dawkins' main thesis is, if you believe in God, you're deluded. And by implication, if you believe the Bible, if you trust the Bible, which is the book where we read about God and what he's done, you're deluded. Now, why do they hold that? I think it's important that we have a look. And this morning, I'm going to have a look at three of the main reasons that are typically brought forth. So I'm not here this morning to throw stones at Richard Dawkins or anyone else. I want us to be informed. And I want us to understand that the objections that come up from the no camp can actually be countered. So let's start with just having a look at one. And this one is very mild. There's, could I have the next slide, please? I'll read it. The Bible is full of wonderful stories. And there's lots of wisdom in it. But some of it is very weird. Most of it is very outdated. Then there are the miracles, which you have to take with a big pinch of salt. Plus, obviously... It's been corrupted over time as it's been passed on. So I just think people should take what is helpful and not get so hung up on it. That's a quote. I can give you the reference later if you'd like it. We're going to pluck the eyes out of that because it's fairly typical. It's actually quite mild. Let's have a look at objection number one. This comes up often. Objection number one. Next slide, please. It's been corrupted over time. So these people say, and rightly, that the original Bible documents were handwritten on perishable material and they were copied by hand over and over again for hundreds of years. Now that is, that is quite correct. And friends, we all know what happens when we play Chinese whispers and how a message gets distorted as it's passed from person to person. It's a very valid concern. Is the Bible we hold in our hands that we have on our device that we've downloaded from the net, is that Bible the real deal? Or was it like Chinese whispers and mistakes crept in and it got corrupted? Testing one, two, testing one, two, testing. Well, actually, These were 
as men was, that scholars were able to look at large sections of the Bible dating back far beyond uh, before the stuff that we had before. And when they compared that with the modern Bibles, yes, there were some small, trivial differences, but they did not affect the content of the Bible as a whole. And again, I can give you a quote for that. So back to our objection, it's being corrupted. That is an understandable concern. Those two men 
were disciples and followers of Jesus. For the three years of his earthly ministry, they were with him. They lived with him. They worked with him. They walked with him. And they wrote their books. They had seen him.
die for a fairy tale? Would you die for something so fantastic that it's unbelievable? You see, it's not so hard to believe that people would die for something they certainly truly believe in. But who would die for a fairy tale? Who would die for a lie? true. A terrible stain on the history of the Christian church and through the ages, but but please don't forget that the Bible has been used to speak against, to work against, to overturn violence, slavery, Sabbath and 
call yourself God? And so the Jews were red hot angry against Jesus and they called him to account and here he is defending himself. Now how does he do it? Let's have a look. If I testify about myself, Jesus says, my testimony is true. Now just stop there for a moment. Please understand, he's not saying that you can't trust him. He's saying in that context, in that setting, it's going to take more than just Jesus talking about himself to establish his case. And that's what he goes on to do. He said, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony is true. Now, who is the other? Well, let's go, as we'll go on to see in the next slide. Thank you. There are two main claims to Jesus' defense as he answers the accusations of his critics. The first is, verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify for myself. So now we're back to the miracles. And can I just add to what we said before? Wouldn't you expect God to do something totally God-like if he expected people to sit up and listen? Now that's what he's doing, miracles. And Jesus is saying, what's the first thing? It's my seal, it's my credential that I've come from the Father. But more, verse 37, and the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. Here's the second thing. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The scriptures that he's talking about are what we would call, we saw on our slide, the Old Testament. That was the Bible in Jesus' day. That was the Bible that he read. These books testify to him. They bear witness to him. He is the main character to which all of it points. He is the key that unlocks its meaning. And if we read the Old Testament, even the hard bits and the bloody bits, then we're not just without seeing him. We're just not reading it right. And the Jews missed that, as do so many in our day. And if that was true of the Old Testament, that first two-thirds, it must also be true by implication of the New Testament, that last section, where we go from the time before his birth to the very end of, of time. And I've had to think about this. If we go through the four Gospels, the book of Acts, if we go through the letters in the New Testament and end up at the book of Revelation and take out every reference to Jesus, if we take out every reference to his life and death and resurrection and return and rule, if we take out all of his teachings about life and death and marriage and family and hell and heaven and so much more, what do you got left? sense and I simply make that point 
about this. If he is the main character, what did he think about his Bible? Did he trust it?
sweet. You can have a friend say, yeah, it's sweet. But how do you know that this nugget is sweet? It's when you open it up, put some on your finger, and you taste it. sections that are very, very disturbing. Yes, some of its truths are hard to grasp. Yes, there are some difficult and weird messages, but read in the light of its purpose, it's very, very sweet. Every bit of it, from start to finish. You see, it has taught me that God made this world perfect and now broken and we can't fix it. It has taught me that I'm broken, not so great, just a small, weak and sinful man and I can't fix me. Crucified for my sin, risen for my salvation, ruling in heaven now and also in my heart so that I love him and live for him instead of living for myself in this broken world. Risen, ruling and returning. bursting at the seams with hope. I'm not there yet, but I do have hope. I have a life that's worth living, even if it isn't always easy. I have an eternity that's waiting in a new world with Jesus that is beyond anything I could describe for you, no matter how good that was or how much was. He has given me all of that, and I deserve none of it. But he has done more. He's given me a new community. My church. Where he is at work doing in all of us what he has done in me. He's saving lost people. He's rescuing them. He's changing them into his likeness. He's getting them ready for life in a new world with him. He's fixing their broken lives. He's giving them hope and a future. And that, dear friends, is why I trust the Bible. Because it is so very, very sweet. And isn't that what you have spent your life story?
That's what I trust in. And the thought is this, the best argument for the Bible is the Bible itself. Please read it. We can get you a copy. You can download an app. You can get it online. Please read it. Feel free to get back to me about any bits in it that are just plain weird. we live in a culture that's disconnected from the Bible and the no voice is very loud and gets a lot of press and the best way for you to experience how sweet the Bible is is bed your life on that solid foundation of God is to just take it open it ask God to bring you his message